from the newsroom of The Washington Post. It's Robert Samuels from The Washington Post. Host, this is Sarah Kaplan. Hi, this is Elahe Azadi with The Washington Post. Hey. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, July 7th. Today, the assassination of Haiti's president, plus a controversy over drug policies and Olympic athletes. Last night, an assassination took place in Haiti. The president has has been killed. The first lady was wounded, we believe, with two gunshots. Anthony Fiola is the South America and Caribbean bureau chief for The Post. He has been covering the turmoil in Haiti and what led up to the killing of President Jovenel Moïse. What we know in terms of what the acting prime minister has said is that armed gunmen stormed the president's private residence in the hills above Port-au-Prince a little after 1 a.m. in the morning. We've spoken to eyewitnesses in the area who heard melees of gunfire from what sounded like very heavy machine gun fire um, that lasted for over an hour, usually in sort of segments of of intense rapid fires uh, for 10 minutes, and then things would calm down, and then there would be another sort of round of of, uh, assault weapons fired. So what do we know about who carried out this attack and why they would or could want the president of Haiti to be dead? That is still being unraveled. What the prime minister did say was that they could overhear some of the attackers speaking in Spanish and English. There are also videos and audios circulating of a man speaking in English with an American Southern accent um, who claims to be from the DEA. Now, that is largely being seen as a ruse to create confusion among the presidential guard. But it does, if true, suggest that this was a foreign operation or at least involved foreign people. But I think we need to be careful because the details on this are still emerging. So tell me more about President Jovenel Moïse and what made him so controversial. You know, President Moses came to power after contested 2016 elections. And, you know, ever since then, he has ruled in a period that was ridden by controversies. What we do know is that, you know, about a year ago, he started to rule by decree. The opposition has been trying to pressure him to step down and to allow an interim government to take power in Haiti. They have claimed that elections should have been called earlier than they have been and that he has exceeded his mandate. And some of them have called him, we're calling him a authoritarian in the making. Those were charges that he denied. And of course, the prime minister, acting prime minister today, described him as a man who had honored democracy. So it depends on what side you're on there. That said, 
you know, what we can say is that there was large debate, um, including among legal scholars, as to whether or not Mosaic should have called elections sooner than he has. You know, Haiti is disintegrating fast. Um, it has been eroding into gang violence pretty much since 2018. But during the pandemic, it's taken a sharp turn for the worse. And there are criminal gangs which now control major parts of the capital and roads outside. Um, it has led some residents of, of the capital to try to flee the country, or at least the capital. Um, it has made moving around the country very difficult. Some people are using boats and planes now because the roads are, are too dangerous. You know, just last week, there was a, uh, a massacre in Haiti where there were at least 15 people who were killed in gang violence when shootings were happening on the streets. Um, there have been reports of gangs even opening fire on ambulances. So, you know, the, the situation on the ground has deteriorated to the point where people are beginning to fear that Haiti is slipping into the status of being a failed state. And how will this assassination affect that or change the lives of average Haitians? Well, I think we're going to see that play out in the next hours and days. Um, you know, there is even a question now about who is the next in charge. Um, the interim prime minister was actually poised to step down in favor of a new prime minister um, who was about to come in. So there is now some uncertainty about who will actually be ruling the country in the interim. The constitution in Haiti calls for elections within 90 days. And I think what we're going to see is if that plays out. Certainly what it has created is a power vacuum in the country. And there are concerns that if they cannot maintain law and order on the streets, that the, the gangs who are already so powerful there may impose their rule in more parts of the capital and even beyond. Some of these gangs are warring against each other. So, you know, there's a serious concern that you could have warlord-like situations erupt in Haiti as well. I don't think we know the answer yet to how this is going to play out, but there are certainly lots of concerns on the streets of Haiti today, you know, from citizens who are very unsure about what direction their country is going to take. You mentioned this fear that Haiti might be sliding into the status of a failed state, that there was so much economic and political instability. But I think it's also worth talking about why that economic and political instability exists and what role the U.S. has had in that. Well, what we do know is that during the Trump administration, President Moses was supported by the United States. And that was partly due to the fact that Moses had taken a harder stance against Venezuela's president, Nicolas Maduro. And because of that, you, you saw the U.S. sort of tread lightly, I guess you'd say, um, in terms of the criticism of the way in which the government was handling the gang violence and the allegations that had surfaced that the gangs may have some connection even to the presidential palace. That issue took the back burner due to the diplomacy issue with Venezuela. Um, during the Biden administration, we have not yet seen a major shift in policy. I think there has been some hope by the opposition in Haiti that the Biden administration would take a much stronger approach towards Moses. And we have not necessarily seen that happen, but there have been renewed calls by the, by the Americans for elections as soon as were feasibly possible. And I do believe that now there will be some hopes that Haiti can 
pull together a legitimate election that will be honored by both sides or all sides. You know, the country, though, is at such a tipping point socially and in terms of the gang violence that it's unclear how quickly Haiti's institutions, which have been so gravely weakened over the last several years, are going to be able to manage to pull that off. Haiti has a sad history, you know, ever since escaping the yoke of colonialism. But more recently, in recent decades, they faced brutal dictatorships under uh, Duvalier and his son. And in addition, during the era of democracy, you know, it has witnessed extreme bouts of unrest, um, you know, as well as political upheavals, in addition to natural disasters. It suffered a horrific earthquake um, that killed thousands. It additionally suffered severe blows by hurricanes. This is a country that has not been able to catch a break. Anthony Fiola is the South America and Caribbean Bureau Chief for The Post. This story was produced by Jordan Marie Smith. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. So Shakiri Richardson is a breakout star from this year's U.S. Olympic trials for track and field. She runs the 100 meters. Anne Brannigan is a reporter for The Lily at The Post. When she won the 100-meter event in Eugene, Oregon last month, she just captured everybody's attention. Shakari Richardson with that bright orange hair. She wasn't the first out of the blocks. On the inside, Tiana Daniels got a good start, but this is where Richardson winds up and eases back. She points to the time, 10.65. How about that? So not only did she have this blazing time, the second fastest posted in the world this year, second only to the Jamaican sprinter, Shelly Ann Fraser-Price, it was the sixth fastest 100-meter time recorded ever for a woman. Well, emotionally, unbelievable. <laughs> the fact that I am an Olympian, no matter what is said or anything, I am an Olympian. A dream since I've been young. I'm pretty sure everybody's dream as a track athlete. So being happy is an understatement. Being excited, nervous, all of those feelings. Pound in one, I'm highly blessed and grateful. It seemed like Shakari Richardson was going to be one of the big stars of the Summer Olympics. And then all of that suddenly changed. She was disqualified from competing in the 100 meter. She was not chosen for the relay race. And she won't be going to Tokyo, all because of a failed marijuana test. So last Friday, the U.S. Anti-Doping Agency announced that Shakari Richardson had failed a drug test for marijuana. When Richardson talked about this, she owned up to it. She said that she knew the rules. 
but that she had done it because she had gotten this surprise announcement about her biological mother's death before she ran in the meet. We all have our different struggles. We all have our different things we deal with. But to put on a face, to have to go in front of the world and put on a face and hide my pain, um, like, who? I don't know. Who are you? Or who am I to tell you how to cope when... You're dealing with a pain or you're dealing with a struggle that you've never experienced before. She was in Eugene, Oregon at the time of this meet. Weed is legal there and she consumed some amount of it in order to process sort of the anxiety and the grief of that moment. So it was this really shocking sort of turn of events, especially for an athlete that everybody was really looking forward to seeing run the 100 meters in the Olympics this month. So the fact that this happened to Shakari Richardson, what kinds of questions is that raising? Well, what it raises is not whether she should be punished because that rule is clear, but why marijuana is grouped in this rule to begin with. So the rule I'm referring to comes from the World Anti-Doping Agency, which classifies marijuana the same way that it does as cocaine and MDMA, ecstasy, and heroin, um, banning it with the understanding that these aren't performance-enhancing drugs, but that they are substances which can be abused in society, which is why they're part of this list. And the question that a lot of folks have, and have had after you know this, this incident with Richardson, is whether or not that's appropriate given the extent to which marijuana is now being decriminalized, not just in the United States, but globally. So you say that there are questions around this policy and how it is being applied to Shakari Richardson. But at the same time, I'm sure that there are people who are looking at this and saying athletes can't do drugs. They know that they're going to be drug tested, especially at this high level of competition. And she knew the rules and she should have been able to follow them. What would you say to that? So, yeah, that's a good question. And, you know, we have to think about this marijuana rule within the context of these larger anti-doping rules, which really cover quite a bit of ground. And so this is really emblematic of a larger issue. And we could see that in the backlash that happened to Richardson's case last week, because it didn't happen in a vacuum. It happened on the same week that, for instance, Olympic hurdler Brianna McNeil, who competes for the United States. She lost her appeal of a five-year ban for violating anti-doping rules because she missed a drug test last year. And she says it's because she was in bed recovering from an abortion. And a lot of folks felt that was unfair. Last week, we also saw two Namibian teenagers told that they couldn't compete in the Olympics because they had naturally high testosterone levels that did not meet the threshold that has now been set. And so we saw in these different stories, Black women really dealing with the brunt of these anti-doping rules. And so what it does is it raises a question of who is being punished for these rules and are they being applied fairly? Or is there something fundamentally off about the way that they're structured? 
It seems like what is happening in this one case does dovetail with so much of the conversation that's happening nationally around marijuana. Who is punished for using it? Who isn't? Now that it is legalized in many places, what happens to all the black and brown people who have suffered extreme punishment for smoking marijuana, for having marijuana? And so it seems like that is kind of intersecting with what is happening in the Olympics right now. Right. And so... You know, to be clear about one thing, a lot of marijuana advocates that I spoke to don't believe that the U.S. Anti-Doping Agency targeted Shakari Richardson because she's Black. But the important way to frame it is exactly as you were referring to, that her punishment is part of an ongoing legacy of these laws at a really pivotal time for marijuana decriminalization. So... Something that the people I spoke to mentioned was that these laws are inherently rooted in policies that were explicitly intended to put black and brown people in jail. And even though we see 30 states now have some manner of decriminalization, whether that's allowing for medical marijuana or for recreational marijuana, there is still a big disconnect with, on the federal level, how that drug is classified. It is still classified as a Schedule One drug, which puts it on par with substances like heroin and ecstasy and cocaine. Also, didn't Michael Phelps smoke weed? Like, wasn't that a thing? And he still competed in the Olympics? Absolutely. Yeah, he was... Somebody who is very out and proud uh, about his smoking, but he'd never tested positive for marijuana while he was training or while he was competing. And that's a funny little sort of caveat of this rule is that it only applies to athletes in competition. And that is why Shakiri ended up running kind of afoul of it. But with marijuana specifically, this is not like alcohol. It can be in your system for weeks after you ingest it. So a lot of the question that marijuana advocates have is, how do you even enforce this rule knowing what we know about marijuana and how very different it is from some of these other drugs that it's classified with? And so is there a world in which, because of this, the Olympic Committee will have to rethink this policy? So what's interesting here, and I'm thinking of my conversation with Kimberly Dillon, who is the founder of Frig, which is a wellness company that uses cannabis in their products. She mentioned that a really important thing to know about the cannabis industry is that a lot of people are recognizing the amount of money they can make from it. And so many of us are rubbing it on ourselves for pain or taking it right now for anxiety and she does the same thing with the same plant and like her dreams get crushed for it while people are really profiting off this industry. Like these, this is going to be a billion, already is a billion dollar industry. And there's still so many victims due to the war on drug, even to this day. And so what will change the game and a lot of folks in the industry feel like this is where it's inevitably headed is that we will one day live in a world where there are Johnson & Johnson cannabis products. There will be a Coca-Cola product that contains cannabis. And when that happens, you will see deregulation happening at the same time, right? Because there is so much money to be made. 
And so the question now becomes for a lot of people in the industry is how long that will take. When I spoke to folks in the industry, they expected to see these laws change within the next two or three years. Now, it could be further out than that. It could be 10 years. But they truly feel that this change is inevitable. And so the question we have to ask ourselves now is, who is being sacrificed on that path to broader scale decriminalization, to broader scale legalization? Anne Brannigan is a staff writer for The Lily. This story was produced by Sabby Robinson. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was mixed by Lena Muhammad. We have heard from so many listeners about our episode from last Friday with Post Advice columnist Carolyn Hacks. It's all about navigating the weird, wonderful world of being vaccinated. If you haven't heard that episode yet, you can go to postreports.com to check out our episode archive. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening.